the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, coming at you on AM860, The Answer. And you can grab me live either on your AM radio or on your computer. You can go to my website, drbillradiomd.com. That's drbillradiomd.com. Click listen live or join me and you'll be you'll be. On and in the show, you'll be one of us. And also, you can go to your radio, and it's 9 to 10 a.m. every Sunday morning, and we also archive the uh, broadcast and the podcast. You can go to my website and find the link to the old shows if you're interested. And my website's gradually getting better. I'm, I'm getting it up, and I'm being more diligent. But, of course, I've been sick this summer with the surgery, and also it's been a little bit uh, – a little bit tardy, but I'm getting there. Well, today I want to talk about the Trump rally we had in Tampa last, uh, what was it, Tuesday, I think, Bill? Tuesday evening. And uh, what an experience for me. I had never been uh, to a Trump event before, and it was just, uh, it was just unbelievable. I couldn't, I couldn't fathom that the numbers of people turned out, and from all over the place, to come here, the president, and it was at the fairgrounds at the Florida State Fairgrounds, and there's a uh, an arena there, a, a meeting hall, exhibition hall, and I'm guessing it holds ten to fifteen thousand people, packed to the rafters, and then there was another thousand or two people outside watching the event on on big screen TVs because there was no more room in the uh, in the hall to get anybody in. Uh, the layout was the at the far end, there was the podium and bleachers behind that, and that's where the president and uh, Rick DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, and his wife and the other speakers were at. And they had, uh, you know, 100 people in the bleachers behind them. And then there was an area of about 10 to 15 feet that was completely empty, and there were barricades. And then the crowd was was between that barricade and where our press area started. Now the press area was completely surrounded by barricades with one entrance and we had secret service and uh, guards all around. I mean, every 10 feet inside the press area for security. Now I didn't see or hear anybody threatening uh, to do any harm to the press. Although there was a crowd that was booing and jeering the CNN uh, crew people and Jim Acosta, their, their reporter, their face, 
<clears throat> and uh, they were using some language that I would not use, but uh, I didn't see anybody make any physical threats. There were some fingers flying and some F words dropped, uh, and they were waving banners and, you know, CNN sucks and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't hear anybody threaten any violence. I didn't see any violent acts towards the CNN crew or Jim Acosta. So uh, I think that it was, it was expected protest by the base. And of course the base is going to include uh, not only intellectuals and the well-to-do and the wealthy, but it's also going to include the uh, average Joe on the street and people who are working in in labor jobs as well as tradesmen. And uh, so you're going to have a mix and you're going to get a reaction from part of the crowd that is uh, perhaps unpleasant and untowered, but certainly not violent. And in fact, I was just telling Bill before the, the show started that I was so impressed by how well behaved this crowd was. It, it was just unbelievable. They filed in very orderly. And they filed out very orderly. There was no pushing or shoving. There was no one trying to jump in front of someone else. And the concession line was a mile long because there were just too few people to work the concession stand. And I didn't see any anybody say anything negative to anybody other than the Secret Service guys ushering out uh, the the protesters or telling the people with uh, – with the F word on their T-shirt to turn it inside out because it was too inflammatory. And all that went smoothly from what I could see. Now, listen, I, I was I was truly impressed. And, you know, I've said that I've been backing Trump and people say, oh, you love him. I don't know the guy. You know, I don't know him personally, so I don't love him or hate him. It's not the, it's not the person. It's the policies that I that I'm interested in and that I'm all about. And I don't I didn't care. Who would carry that message forward and who would be able to do what Trump was doing? Uh, it didn't matter to me if it was Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio. Uh, it could have been any number of people. But I must say that Trump's doing a job that we probably could not have gotten out of any other candidate on the Republican side. And I'll give him credit for that. But I was, I was so impressed. This crowd stood up when he walked onto the podium and he spoke for one hour. I mean, the guy is in his 70s, and he spoke for one hour. He'd already had a couple of stops on his way uh, to Tampa. And sure, he has a, a wonderful uh, ride there with Air Force One, and I'm sure he can grab a nap, and he's got a chef, and he's got all the accoutrements. But still, air flight for me is draining, even if I'm in first class. And I don't know how this guy does it. And he stands up there, and he is bellowing. For one hour, for one full hour, he's knocking out his speech, his platform, his accomplishments. He's exalting his base and uh, attacking his opponents. And the crowd was on their feet for one full hour. Now, this wasn't a young crowd. I mean, it was a mixed crowd, but there were people from all over. I interviewed uh, two identical twins in their 70s, two women. And they had driven from Orlando for this. And I was commenting to Mary, our marketing rep, who was there with us at the rally. By the way, it was Captain Matt and uh, Roger P. and I that were there manning the, the microphones and 
and calling the 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 whole deal and it was a lot of fun and everybody did a good job i was i was really happy to have the opportunity to spend uh three hours on air with the captain and with roger p uh, roger p shulman is one of our announcers on the uh, salem networks here in tampa bay and captain matt has the two to six a.m show and he does a heck of a bang-up job, and he's got a big following. Oh, my goodness. He had his cell phone out, and it was open to his Facebook uh, blog site, and there was just one one tweet after another coming through, and he was pointing to me. And I mean, it was just a steady stream running through his phone. So he he does have a pretty good following from what I can see, and uh, he knew a lot of people at the convention there, so it, it was fun to be with those guys. You know, they have contacts that that I don't have because I'm not full time at this. I'm just a Sunday morning guy, uh, but uh, I, I really enjoyed being with them, and I, I send a big thanks out to all of them. So here's this crowd of people. I mean, all kinds of people, from doctors to ditch diggers. I mean, it was an incredible crowd. We even had one old guy, I don't know how he was still walking, he was a special forces guy, and he had his beret on, he must have been 80 years old, and he stopped and talked to us for a few minutes, and he was praising uh, some of his friends who he had trained, who helped in the rescue of those kids uh, in the cave in Thailand a few weeks ago. So we we had everything from A to Z. Unbelievable. We had the uh, co-chairman of the state committee to elect Trump. And I had interviewed him on the show <clears throat> before the uh, general election. And so he sat down with us and, and chit-chatted, and I reminded him. And he was so grateful and so beaming that he had the opportunity to say a few words with us. And he actually was on the podium and, uh, with the president because he was a big guy in, in terms of what he did for the campaign in the, in the state of Florida. And we had DeSantis people, and then we had some local politicians and all this was transpiring uh, around the main speakers, which were Ron DeSantis and then the president himself. <clears throat> so it was an experience that, that I would not miss if I had the opportunity to go again. And um, some of the highlights for me included the three or four protesters that were taken out by the Secret Service. And it was funny to see because the president was speaking, and as he looked down into the crowd, this guy is, is, I mean, he's really attuned to what's going on. He looked down in the crowd, and he pointed his finger at these protesters. And the Secret Service were there within 10 seconds, 15 seconds, and they grabbed them. And I don't mean that they said, come with me, my dear. Uh, you'll have to leave the, the exhibition center. They grabbed them by the scruff of their necks, by their collars, and they were hauling them out with security guys. Uh, it looked like a couple of the women had on Habibs. Now, whether or not they were Muslim, I don't know. It was probably just all for show. <clears throat> but it made for great drama, and it gave the press some good bites and some good pictures. And they all, all, the, all the liberal press ran over to get a picture of these four, three or four people that were being hauled out. Listen, you got 15,000 people that came out for this event and three or four protesters. So what percentage of the crowd is that? It's minuscule. It's nothing. 
And they were trying to make a big deal out of this. And Captain Matt was saying, look, look at all the left-wing newspaper people running over there. And uh, they were. I mean, you know, I, I was sitting right there. We, The way the press area works is it's uh, it's set up with the tiered area in the front of the press area because the cameras have to set up for CNN and ABC and, and Fox and all the other stations. So the cameras have to all have a position where they can see clearly the podium and, and capture the president. And then behind that are the uh, the newspaper people and the radio people and the all the other people that don't necessarily need uh, a front row so they can get video because, of course, we're not doing video, we're doing radio. And so we were behind those folks, and but right in front of us were the uh, White House press corps people, the the people who were working the newspapers, but who were not in the uh, in the in the filming end of the business, and then right behind that was our or were our people in our our table. So we were, you know, we were able to reach over and pat the shoulder of of people from the New York Times and uh, the Washington Post and all the big uh, liberal newspapers. We were right in the thick of it, and I could walk up and and go right up to Jim Acosta, who was announcing for CNN uh, right on the stage there. And, and in, in fact, at one point, he came down and started debating one of the folks in the audience who were heckling him. And nobody had threatened violence, but his big thing was is that uh, he was afraid that this kind of behavior would encourage violence towards the press. And he pointed out the, the shooting of the five people at the Capitol Gazette uh, a month or two ago in the in the washington d c area that, that newspaper was a uh, was uh, attacked by some crazy guy who was upset about something they had published or refused to publish on his behalf and it wasn't political from what I could tell it wasn't a terrorist act it was just a, a crazy man who went in there and shot up the place so that was probably the biggest single i think in fact it was the biggest single uh murdering of the press in U.S. history. And I'll talk about that a little bit later, about how dangerous it is or not dangerous it is to be a member of the press. So so Acosta came down, and he's standing about three or four feet back from the railing. And this guy's saying, you're lying about the president. And Acosta is saying, tell me what I've lied about. You know, tell me something. And the guy couldn't come up with anything. I, I don't think that he was uh, studied enough in depth enough to debate somebody like Jim Acosta, who majored in journalism at uh, at Mason University and who's been in the business 25 plus years uh, and uh, commands a good salary, by the way, and I don't blame him. And Acosta was saying, look, I'm an American just like you. I was raised uh, to do the Pledge of Allegiance just like you, and I believe in free enterprise just like you. And, of course, this guy really didn't have a good comeback and I was on my knees with the microphone going back and forth. I think um, Joe, one of the guys at our stations, editing that for me. He better be. And uh, I got down on my knees because the camera crews were shooting over top of me. And then at the at the very end of it, I stood up and I asked Acosta and said a few words to him. And I was trying to tell him that uh, the president was making money for the for the press because. Americans are watching the news more than ever because of this this president they perceive as being 
crazy or a loose cannon or the spokesman for their feelings or whatever it is. Oh, my gosh, it's gone crazy. I mean, everybody is watching the news to see what Trump has to say today. So Acosta kind of he lighted over that and he said, you know, it's dangerous. He, he was telling me that it was a dangerous situation that the press was going to be in jeopardy and in peril because of all of these right wing people chanting and yelling at him as he was broadcasting from from the platform at the front of the press box with the podium behind him and the president and the speakers behind him there. And uh, I didn't sense that there was any real danger in, in the in the arena there. I didn't sense that anybody really wanted to come in and do me any harm or do him any harm. I could be wrong, but uh, it looked to me like it was just verbal protest and nothing more. And and here's what happened right afterwards. I said, you know, I'd love to get you on my show. And he said, I thought I was on your show. And he walked off. I mean, the guy, you know, the guy's been doing this for a long time. He, he knows how to handle himself. And he walked out of the press box unaccompanied. He didn't have a Secret Service guard with him or a state trooper or anybody. And he walked right over to the concession stand and got himself a drink and came back. And I didn't see anybody approach him. I didn't see anybody yell at him. I didn't see anybody shake their fist. Everybody treated him respectfully. Uh, but look, I understand that he's in the business of being sensational. I mean, this is how the guy makes his money. He makes it by drawing a crowd because he is in the thick of the politics of the country and he asked tough questions and he is pushy and demanding as one of the white house press corps. And of course he was asked not to come into one of the press corps meetings at the white house. Uh, but, uh, everybody stood all the members of the press stood up for him and for his right to be there because even Fox news understands that freedom of the press is integral to the functioning of our democracy. Uh, I, I don't see that the danger is there for him, though, and I do see that he is a capitalist. He is a free enterpriser because he has to negotiate a salary with CNN. And the guy's making in high six figures. He's probably making in seven figures this year. But, you know, his net worth is 4 or $5 million. He's making 700000 plus by the last uh, analysis, 700000 a year. And that's damn good money for a journalist. You just don't see journalists making that kind of money. The newspaper people, their annual average wage is forty-six to $50,000 a year. These are not high-paying jobs. Radio's not high-paying unless you're Hugh Hewitt or uh, Mike Gallagher or one of the guys who are syndicated nationally and have big sponsors like MyPillow. And so – the high-paying jobs in the news industry are, of course, the ones that are televised, the people that are on Fox and Friends in the morning and uh, the evening Fox News shows, people like Jim Acosta who are on CNN for the White House coverage. And so we see people, and they're very few and far between, that make big money. But, of course, they have to negotiate these salaries and they have to prove their worth. And what do you expect from Jim Acosta? His father was a, a Cuban uh, immigrant, and his mother had Irish blood in her, so no doubt he was raised Catholic. He doesn't give the bio of his childhood, which I'm sure was Catholic and parochial schools. He went to a public high school and then to 
Mason University, uh, which is a, a, a wonderful school and certainly more than devoted to the Bill of Rights, since Mason was the author of the Bill of Rights and the university is named after him. And so what do you expect from this guy? I mean, he's not going to be uh, on the right wing. He went to journalist school. He was raised Catholic. He was died in the wall, so to speak, Democratic. And that doesn't mean that he votes Democratic. I don't know how he votes. But he knows who his audience is, and he knows what it takes to get a reaction, and he knows how to make himself bigger than life so that he can get a better salary. And that's capitalism. That's free enterprise. So I don't, you know, I don't fault him for that. And I don't fault him for taking the stand that he took. And he said to this guy he was debating with, he said, I did too go after Obama. And so I looked up a couple of things and he actually did uh, go after Obama on a few things. He went after Obama on ISIS and he said, you know, Mr. President, you said ISIS was the JV and now they're taking over big chunks of Syria. And of course the president uh, wouldn't answer him and went on to another reporter, but uh, he did go after him. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I can't fault the guy. Certainly he has a lot more fuel in that he is upholding the, or holding the standard, the flag of the, of the liberal left-wing press uh, when dealing with Trump. So there's a lot more opportunity for him, but let's face it, you know, the president's making those opportunities available and that's not by accident. He's doing it on purpose. And so I say to Jim Acosta and to all the people in the press and uh, in radio and television broadcasting, hey, this guy's making money for us. He's, he's bringing us more business. There are more people listening and watching than ever before. Good for him. Good for him. So how dangerous are these jobs? How dangerous it is, is it to be in the press corps? It's really not that dangerous. I mean, the, the press corps doesn't even make it into the top 25 uh, in terms of dangerous industries where you can lose your life. And there's been a number of, of the press killed over the years. And in the first part of the 21st century here, there's been about 10 people killed. And there's about 32,000, 33,000 people that are, are identified as uh, full-time journalists. And that includes newspapers and radio and TV. And so it's not a big number. And by the way, five of those people were killed in the uh, Capitol Gazette attack that we had at the beginning of the summer here. And so they're certainly an indication that there is a risk and that there are crazy people out there. And this is probably what Acosta was trying to get at that the inflammatory speech and the uh, threats and the uh, mock violence against the left or the right are going to bring people out who are crazy and who are going to do things like this. But even at that, it's a very small number of people that have been killed. The majority of the journalists that were killed were killed in the 19th century, and that's because they were uh, operating newspapers, editors of newspapers, or uh, reporters for newspapers, and in that day, small newspapers, the editor was often the reporter, he was often the owner as well, and they were abolitionists. So they wanted to get rid of slavery, and they were doing this in states where that was not popular. Missouri was a slave state, and Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, what was then the West, uh, they 
were not against slavery. They just didn't want it in their state. And so people who put themselves in the position of opposing slavery and being abolitionists were often attacked by pro-slavery people. It was and continues to be a, a, a very hot debated topic by people who are on both sides of the equation. 99% of us today would say that slavery is not a good thing. It's an immorality. But the left will say that the use of cheap labor from Mexico and Central America is another form of slavery, and that's why they want to uh, abolish borders. That's why they want to allow these people to have full uh, citizenship or at least have a green card right away so that they're supposedly protected more by uh, the laws that, that the United States has and they by the way if you come to the united states whether you're legal or illegal you have the same legal protection under the criminal laws as a full citizen does so there's some of the debate that is really kind of moot and really there's nothing to it but let's let's say that cheap labor is a form of 21st century slavery well then we're back to the same debate we were in the 19th century and you've got the left and the right and the left is saying you're abusing these people, and you need to let them in, and they need to have uh, the full coverage of anybody with a green card, of any resident alien. And the right is saying, well, they came here illegally, so if they're here illegally, it's at their own risk, and why should we go out of our way to give them any more rights than anybody else? They should come through the system the same way that my wife came through the system, which is she, coming from Korea, she had to uh, uh, make application and she got a work visa and then after a certain period of time she got her green card and after so many years she took her oath of citizenship and now she's a citizen and it was a long process you know it was five six seven years i don't know the exact amount and so there's arguments on both sides and the the best i can tell you is that when i was building my house and i couldn't find anybody to work to do the things that I needed done, and I was the contractor for my house, I got some Mexican guys, and they were here illegally, and I knew that. And I got to tell you, they did a good job, and I paid them what I paid the other guys, and they were treated just as well. Of course, they're not paying taxes, and they're not paying Social Security. So that, I think, is, is a big drawback to allowing people to come in illegally because we want them to participate fully, and I would prefer that they come legally because then they've got a green card, they get a social security number, and they have to pay their taxes and their social security and their Medicare. And all these things are important to making sure that our system runs. But here's the thing. I did not mistreat anybody. And I certainly would have been happy to have legal aliens working for me, just as happy as if I had illegal aliens. And you can say, well, Doc, why didn't you go to your local, uh, uh, what do they call these people that supply labor, these labor pools or these companies that will supply you manpower? And I did. And I got guys from there. And, uh, you know, it was hit and miss. I had to send people home. I had to call the company and say, come pick up this guy because it's disruptive. One guy was, I had him in the in the basement digging a ditch and he said I'm not a slave and he's carrying on and giving me a hard time and I said dude I've already dug half that ditch and if you don't want to do it get off my property and I threw him off the property you know don't come and work for me when I'm paying you 
and give me a hard time. I mean, if, if you want to come work for me, then you come work and you get what we have negotiated and you'd be grateful in the Mexican guys that I had work. Now, a couple of them I threw off the, 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 the uh, job site because they weren't doing the, the work and pulling their load. So, uh, you know, essentially it was not a lot different. I think the motivation for the guys from Mexico was, was stronger. Uh, they had more financial responsibility back home. They were feeding their families. Most of these guys were married. And so uh, I had respect for them, not that they came here illegally, but I had respect for them that they were willing to work and work hard for the money that was offered. Uh, and uh, it was a decent, you know, it was decent pay for during the recession. So I, all I can tell you is that the debate is basically the same as it was in the 19th century, but I don't see as much violence. I really don't. I don't see that the left is uh, killing the conservative journalist or shooting them or beating them up. And I don't see that the right's going after the abolitionist left, if you want to call them that, and, and murdering them as they did in the 19th century. So I'm not sure that Acosta's uh, his view or his take on this is legitimate. I think it's legitimate in terms of negotiating your contract with Fox News or CNN next year because you can say, look, not only are the ratings up, but I'm in a dangerous position here, so I, I want more money. I want a million dollars a year. I want more than 750000 That's good money for a journalist. That's good money. And, you know, if Acosta can, uh, if he can finagle that, more power to him. That's all I have to say is more power to the guy. I'm going to grab a cup of Joe. I'll be right back. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. With SRN News, I'm Jeremy House in Washington. President Trump says insurers are going wild about his new health care options. Millions of people will be signing up, but insurance companies say it'll take time to design new plans and get approval from state regulators. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro is blaming the far right for an apparent assassination attempt using a drone. Maduro said they include detractors in Bogota and Miami, as well as Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos. Governor Jerry Brown has called on President Trump to help California fight and recover from another devastating wildfire season. Brown, who inspected neighborhoods wiped out by a wildfire in Northern California, the city of Redding, says he was confident the president would send aid. And the Portland Police Bureau says it's confiscated multiple weapons and arrested four people during Saturday's rowdy protests by right-wing activists and self-described anti-fascists. More details at srnews.com. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of Can Care, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is 
conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. Hi, this is Charlie Slows. 20 years ago, I called the first Major League Baseball game in Tampa Bay. These days, I'm calling games in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., but proud to still call Tampa Bay our winter home. I'm also proud to say I'm now a spokesperson for a man many of you have come to know, David Graham of Graham Capital Advisors. In the early 2000s, we were all making a lot of money in our IRAs and 401ks. Then the Great Recession hit, and half of our money was gone goodbye. Now that things are rolling again, get a good second opinion from Graham Capital Advisors before the market tanks again. David Graham is a master certified estate planner. He works for you, not some large corporation. Call Graham Capital with offices in Tampa, Sarasota, and D.C. Have them review your portfolio and protect what you've worked so hard for. In the words of David Graham, it's not what you have, it's not what you earn. It's what you get to keep. Schedule an appointment today. Go to GrahamCapitalAdvisors.com. That's GrahamCapitalAdvisors.com. This is Hugh Hewitt for Town Hall Review. If you're like me, you want more than just facts. You want insight from people you trust. People like Dennis Prager, Michael Bedved, Larry Elder, Mike Gallagher, and of course me, your host each week on the Town Hall Review, a weekly roundup of the news. Tune in each week and visit our website at TownHallReview.com. That's TownHallReview.com. Sundays at noon on AM860, The Answer. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. Partly sunny today with a thunderstorm in the area late this afternoon and a high of 93. Partly cloudy this evening, low 75. Then tomorrow, a mix of clouds and sunshine and a high of 92. Tuesday will be mostly sunny with a high of 91. Thunderstorms Wednesday afternoon. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Holly Holdren for AM860, The Answer. And I'm back. This is Dr. Bill. A little bit of Don Henley and Dirty Laundry talking about the press and sensationalism. And that's what I focused on the first part of the show, as well as the Trump rally that um, I was at with Captain Matt and Roger P. And I was talking about how dangerous or not dangerous it is to be uh, a member of the press. And uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was challenged on this very subject by the press. And uh, Jim Acosta was trying to get her to say that the president's attitude and tweeting and his negative comments about the the fake press and the phony press uh, was or would promote violence against the press. And she said, you know what? I'm part of the press, and I'm the only press corps, the only White House press spokesperson who's ever had to have a Secret Service detail with them because of the way that I'm being attacked by the left wing when I'm out in public. And remember, she was thrown out of the restaurant by a woman who didn't like 
the president's uh, policies and didn't like her. So she had a comeback for that. And, and basically, she was saying the president's not going to apologize for what he said because it's the truth. <clears throat> well, I don't know where the absolute truth is on this, but I do know that it's it's not that dangerous of a job to be in the press corps. And I've gone through the most dangerous jobs in America in the past, and the, the top three still remain commercial loggers, commercial fishermen, and commercial pilots. And you say, commercial pilots? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you. If you're flying in the bush out in the bush in Alaska, and you're a professional pilot who's ferrying things back and forth, you have a high mortality rate. And we think of professional pilots, we think of people uh, flying a big 767 or uh, an Airbus, but there are a lot of pro pilots who are flying small planes, short hops, and the smaller planes are the ones that crash most of the time. And so those are high-risk jobs. And by the way, being a policeman, it doesn't even make it in the top 10 of the most dangerous jobs in the United States. That's about number 15. So what about news people? What about the press? They don't even make it in the top 25. You want to know who the top uh, most dangerous jobs were in 2016? Loggers, fishing people, aircraft pilots and flight engineers, roofers, trash and recycling collectors. And and you don't think of roofers as, as being a dangerous job, but that's because we don't hear about them falling and dying. I mean, those are not things that are that are put out in the press. They're very sensational. And I know personally, my friend Zoomer John, who passed away a few years ago, he, I think his partner's still there, has a, a auto repair shop. They fix dents and repaint cars and all that. And they have a fairly good-sized uh, warehouse-like building. And there were roofers up years ago putting on uh, new roof and fixing the, the skylights, which are in there. And a young guy in his late teens, early 20s fell, and he landed head first, and it was about 30-foot drop, so he didn't make it. But, you know, we don't think about roofing as being a dangerous job. But it is. It is. It's much more dangerous than being a policeman or in, being a newscaster. And guess what's number five? Trash and recycling connect, collectors getting caught between equipment, getting pulled in by the by the garbage truck uh, machinery, iron and steel workers, truck and sales drivers, farmers, ranchers, agricultural workers, first-line supervisors of construction trades, ground maintenance workers. That's the top 10. That's the top 10. And the top 25, as I said, doesn't even include, doesn't even include newscasters, newspeople, newspaper workers. And where does uh, the policemen come in? Where do they come in? They're at number 14. So, and and don't get me wrong, I'm all for the police, and I want to see them do their job. I want it safe, and I understand that they never know when they're going to get shot at or or attacked by someone that they're arresting. Uh, there's, There's no doubt that it comes with some inherent risk. And I'm sure that if you're working South Chicago, you're going to be at a higher risk for being killed than if you're working Gulfport, Florida, which is a pretty quiet little neighborhood. And I fully understand that. But come on, guys. Your job is not even in the top 10 of the most dangerous. 
So let's put it into perspective. And let's tell Jim Acosta, by the same token, being a newsman is not, not that dangerous of a job. But you go, boy. You take it and carry it forward when you're negotiating your, your next contract. I'm all for that. I mean, come on. There are lots more dangerous jobs than, than what we do. There's a lot more dangerous things we do than than being newscasters or covering the White House or covering conventions. So we have to be honest with ourselves and with each other, even if we're going to push it out to the public that it's a, you know, it's a really tough job. And I'm not saying it's not difficult. I'm sure there are a lot of long hours that people like Jim Acosta put in to getting to where he's at. And he's a good looking guy and he's articulate and he's well-dressed. So he's got all the things that you need. And I'm sure that he manicures himself and spends time and money and effort on it. And so he should be rewarded for the effort that he's put into it. That's free enterprise. I'm all for it. But we're not in a real dangerous job. Are we in a dangerous time? Are we close to a civil war? Well, this has been bantered about a little bit. And I'm sure that I was one of the first to bring that up after 9-11. I looked at one of my friends in the lunchroom as we were sitting there, and about six months after it, I looked at him, and we were listening to the nation starting to tear itself apart along left and right lines over the 9-11 attack. And I looked at him, and I said, Rich, we're headed for a civil war. And he said, you know, uh, I agree with you. I said, I don't know if it's going to happen in our lifetime, but I think we're going to see a civil war. I think we're going to see one more fight to determine whether or not uh, the left or the right is going to hold sway. Hopefully that won't happen. And I think the fact that Trump got elected will slow it down. And I know that people on the left don't believe that, but I really think that the, that the big fight would come from the right, and not from the left. I think that the left makes a lot of noise, but I don't see them uh, arming themselves. Uh, I don't see them coming up with plans for uh, long-term survival in bunkers and all that, but I see people on the right doing that. So I'm guessing they're the ones that are going to start start the Civil War. Maybe not. I may be wrong. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, but I do think that Trump being in power has made a lot of people on the right feel safer and calmer and less assaulted, even though the president is is banding about all of this fake news and they're out to get us and all that. And, you know, I, I certainly feel like I'm less threatened by the left now than I was when Obama was in power because not only could they uh, uh, pump out the verbal threats, but they could actually do economic and political and social engineering that I consider the biggest threat to our existence as a country. So uh, I think we're in a pretty good position right now. Let's see how long it lasts and let's ride this out uh, to the bitter end. And now I want to tell you a little bit about Ron DeSantis. I, I didn't realize what an impressive guy this was. And, and I got a, uh, an email or a, a text from someone in the uh, Putnam camp wanting to know if I would donate. And I said, no, but I'll be happy to have him on the show if he'd like to come on. I think it's Putnam that's running uh, against Ron DeSantis, isn't it, uh, Bill? I, I think I've got it right. Yes, that's right. And Ron uh, DeSantis had actually invited the president down for his rally here and his run against uh, Putnam. And Putnam was leading, by the way, 
until some commercial came out that didn't make sense and accused Ron DeSantis of trying to raise our taxes 23%. I think the, the gist of it was that Ron DeSantis had introduced a flat tax in the House of Representatives, the congressman for a few years there. And I think that that bill called for a flat tax of 23% on everybody. Now, of course, there's going to have to be some graduation to it because people that are making $30,000 a year aren't going to be able to pay 23% unless that also includes their uh, Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid money. So I, I really don't know that much about the bill, but the ad that was run, at least on behalf of Putnam, seemed to be misleading. And so uh, Ron DeSantis quickly got a lot of traction out of that, and now he's ahead in the polls. And if you've seen his commercials on TV, they're really kind of cute, where he has his kids building the wall, and he's reading to them as they, in the rocking chairs, are going to sleep from uh, Trump's The Art of the Deal and different things like that. And he even commented that there was, it was uh, that, unfortunately, politics lacked humor in this day and age. And I, I got to tell you, I was surprised that the president was such a humorous guy. You don't see that when they give you the, the, the clips on the news and the, the videos and the feeds. All you get are the inflammatory statements or the look what I've done statements, but you don't get the little, uh, the little humoristic uh, vignettes that the president throws in. So I, it was it was fun to see that. But this guy's pretty impressive. He is uh, or has been a member of the House of Representatives, and he's been on several committees. Uh, he was a candidate in 2016 for the U.S. Senate when Marco Rubio uh, said he wasn't going to run because he was running for president. But then when Marco came back into it, um, he he dropped that. And now he's in the race for the governor of the state of Florida, and he has political positions on marijuana, contraceptive and abortion, the economy, education, foreign relations, government, gun laws, health care, immigration, LGBT rights, Russia investigation, veterans affairs, voting rights, all these things he's taken a conservative stance on. Uh, he, was, he was born in Jacksonville, but he was actually raised right here in Pinellas County, and he went to Dunedin High School, graduated there in 1997. He went to Yale, got a B.A. in history, and then he went to Harvard Law School and got his J.D. from there. And then he was Judge Advocate General Corps of the U.S. Navy, and he was with the Naval Reserve in Dallas, Texas. And then he was deployed with the, uh, with the troops over in Iraq, I guess during the Second, uh, the second Gulf War and the Joint Task Force Guantanamo Command Base. He worked there as well. Uh, so he has had frontline experiences as a lawyer. And you say, what do lawyers do in, in, in battle? Why are they in the battlefield? Well, nowadays, because of all the conventions that we've signed, like the Geneva Convention, and I've discussed that in the past, there's rules of war and rules of engagement. And a lot of these troops on the ground, they have to get permission from their commanders to proceed with an attack, and that has to go through the legal department. And since you can't run it back to the to the legal department in the Pentagon, you got to have a, a lawyer right there on site who has some knowledge of the rules of engagement and of, of military law. And so you have lawyers who deployed with these battalions and groups, and they have to sit right there when they're going into battle 
right before the the uh, the microphone or the broadcast or however they're communicating with their troops the radio, and they have to discuss it with them. And of course, they're at risk too because you can bet your blue booties that uh, that the terrorists would love to get a hold of a lawyer who is involved in the. Uh, decisions as to whether or not the, the attack by the American forces, the Allied forces, can proceed. So he was in Fallujah, and he he was at uh, Guantanamo because the the base there. You have to have lawyers to decide if what the interrogators are doing is is okay or whether it constitutes abuse. He's also uh, written and he's taught and. Uh, Seems like a good guy. He's got a lot of experience, and he was a big Trump supporter, and so he called in his marker and got the president to come down for his run at the governorship, and more power to him. He's introduced legislation uh, so he knows how to write, and he uh, just seems to have all uh, all of the skill set that is needed to be a governor or a senator, or a president of the United States. I mean, the guy's uh, doing well. His wife was also very articulate. She spoke. Uh, I had to laugh, though. Uh, you would have loved this, Bill. About two-thirds way through her speech, she threw in a little advertisement for my pillow, for Mike and my pillow. And I guess that Mike has donated money to their cause, but I was, I was laughing my butt off. <laughs> that was great. She, just as smooth as she could be, she just threw in a my pillow. A uh, little, a little uh, shout out for Mike and my pillow, and and that's that's fine with me. If if he's paying uh, to help them out, then they should give him his his due. I don't blame him a bit. Now let me turn to the president, and I said that uh, that I was impressed because he had such a great sense of humor, and he uh, at one point, about fifteen minutes into his speech, he said. Oh, I know you guys don't want to hear this. You're sick of hearing me. You don't want to hear me. And he started to walk off the podium like a little boy who was pouting. And the crowd was roaring, and he came right back. And uh, he, he was actually just a, he's a character. He's quite, he's quite the character, quite cute on stage. And he really knows how to get his base uh, charged up and going. And uh, it was a delight to see him. And I got to tell you a little bit about about the press box because this was fascinating to me. My first experience at a big event like that, uh, where I was corralled in a press box when I did the, when I covered the, uh, the Republican convention here in 2012, uh, we had, uh, booths that were in the exhibit area and, uh, you would man your booth and people would walk around and meet you. And then you could go out into the crowds uh, but you couldn't get too close to the uh, to the major candidates. They were in their own area. And then the night of the of the uh, inaugural speech, not the inaugural, but the acceptance speech by Mitt Romney, uh, you got into the arena with your press pass. And then if you had poll or you knew somebody, then you got up into one of the private um, private rooms, private suites that different politicos and big wigs had and I ended up in Marco Rubio's suite and uh, so I, I got to meet a lot of people there and met our current attorney general Jeff Sessions and various politicians that walked in and out and you know it was really uh, it was really a, a, an interesting and fun time but being in the press box 
parked in the middle of the exhibit hall out at the fairgrounds was a whole new experience for me. Obviously, there were people that did this for a living. They were there every day, and it was a fairly uh, ho-hum experience for them unless there was some excitement in the crowd that they could focus their cameras on or report about. But uh, it, it was fascinating, and I was surprised at the the amount of protection there was for the press, which goes back to my comment that it's really not that dangerous of a business. And don't forget that all of the people who came in were screened. They couldn't bring in umbrellas. They couldn't bring in cameras with uh, removable lenses. They couldn't bring in metallic objects. And they had to go through all kinds of checkpoints. And, uh, you know, it's a, it, was a, it was a big deal to get in there, even for the guy that was up in the bleachers. So I felt very secure, very secure. And I was talking with uh, Bill before the show and uh, Mary, our, our marketing director, one of our marketing people at the station, who does a great job. She just wants to mother us all as well and tell us, tell us all what to do. And she was telling me, now remember, don't cuss when you're on the air. So Mary, I've been doing this for over a decade. I'm, and even the station manager, Barb, took up for me. And said, Mary, he knows what he's doing. And so while we were there, at first she said, you need to get out in the crowd while it's, while it's still small and, and interview people and get some sound bites. And so I ran out and did her, did her bidding, which was okay. I didn't have a problem with that. And then I came back in, and as the crowd built up and they got a little more noisy and vociferous and they were attacking the CNN, she said, oh, don't go out there now. It's too dangerous for you. Like, Mary. <laughs> I've been working crowds in one way or another all of my life. I'm, you know, you just got to kind of laugh and do what you do. And I, I that did go back out in the crowd, by the way. But I didn't see anything even remotely dangerous or threatening. Nothing. Uh, you know, I, I'd love to tell this story coming out of the, out of the uh, convention in 2012 when Mitt Romney was giving his acceptance speech. I left early because I didn't want to fight the traffic, and I'm not a Mitt Romney fan anyway. <clears throat> so I'm coming out, and I'm walking under the underpass. It was at the Amelie Arena over in Tampa, and there are some overpasses there. And so I was walking underneath that, and there's some bum. He's about 15 yards from me, and I look at him, and he says, Are you looking for your car, Doc? And I said, Yeah. He says, you're in that parking lot, and he points to it. This was some Secret Service or Homeland Security or state agent who was posing as a bum who knew me, who knew my name. He knew my face. How much safer can you be than that as a member of the press? That the, the bums that are undercover or the agents that are undercover as bums actually know who you are. As you walk out of a convention of thousands and thousands of people. And I was, I was, I was laughing my butt off. <clears throat> I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. We're well taken care of. Of course, if you go out to dinner and you don't have Secret Service agents with you, uh, you may be uh, uh, the subject of some verbal accostations. But as yet, we haven't seen anybody physically assaulted for being a, a, a journalist, uh, other than the few people who were killed in frequent situations like what happened at the Capitol Grill. By the way, I found my car. It was exactly where the agent said it was. So I say to all of you, 
it's a thrill to be part of, of this. It's a second career for me, and I'm loving it and enjoying it. But it's still pretty safe. But I'll watch out. I'll keep my eyes open because I don't want to end up being shot up. And I don't want you guys hurt either. I love all of you. Thanks for being with you. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.